Your service matters. Whether you're in the military or you're a journalist or you're a teacher or a fireman, first responder, it matters when you serve. It's about a purpose-driven life. People wanted to ask me how my, my child wants to be a catcher. What do I tell them? And I say, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is? We all show some form of valor. Common people doing uncommon things. Loyalty, duty, honor, respect, selfless service, integrity, personal courage. They laid down everything to go to war for us so we can be free to sit here and talk this podcast. Why? Why did you do it? What impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives? It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love, clear convictions and beliefs. It's important in a democracy for us to know that freedom isn't free. The Bob Feller Act of Valor Foundation is exactly the right name for that foundation to inform the American public about the ideals and the virtues and the heroism of people like Bob Feller. Bob Feller, he said, my one piece of advice is read our Constitution and run your lives according to the Constitution. We swear an oath to a document that stands for freedom, makes this experiment that we call the United States of America. We are not perfect, but we hold the moral high ground. We are trying to, in the words of our founding document, in order to form a more perfect union. There are going to be some tough calls to make the world safer, better, to represent those values. We can continue to make this world a much, much better place. Greetings. My name is Galen O'Dell, alongside Colin Kirk, and welcome to the American Valor Podcast. On the American Valor Podcast, supported by the Bob Feller Act of Valor Award Foundation, our goal is to educate and inspire with acts of valor that embody the traits which National Baseball Hall of Famer and United States Navy Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller lived by. Citizenship service above self, and commitment to country in a time of great national need. On today's episode, we are joined by Grant McCracken, an award-winning cultural anthropologist and the author of a new book called The Honor Code. Grant, welcome to the American Valor podcast. Thanks for having me, Galen. No problem. So to start us off, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your career. Yeah, I'm an anthropologist, which means I study human communities. And um, unlike some of the other social sciences, we kind of like to talk to people nose to nose, see if we can't see into their lives, see into their communities, as opposed to, you know, we don't use, uh, we sometimes use statistics, but we're not all about the numbers. We're much more about that kind of very personal interaction, getting to know somebody and kind of building a picture of that person in that community interview by interview. Gotcha. Yeah. So anthropology takes more of a face-to-face approach rather than only just relying on statistics. So what made you decide to become an author? I don't know. I just, I went to school and, and just at the moment when anthropology looked like it could take on the study of American culture, as you know, traditionally anthropologists go off to Africa or the Pacific or to Asia But for the first time, 
as I was coming through graduate school and it became possible for anthropologists to think about studying American culture. So that's what I've been doing. And God knows there are a lot of people studying American culture, but not all of them are anthropologists. So it seemed like there was an opportunity there. When you say American culture, does that mean North America and South America or, or what are you looking at precisely? I, I'm thinking chiefly about the U.S., Okay. Um, I like to cast the net a little uh, wider, if only because I'm Canadian. So I think about both sides of the border, but I was thinking of America as being, in some sense, the first country into the future, right? It's so innovative. It's so advanced. It's so committed to uh, building and rebuilding itself that, you know, I think it's fair to say that, Amer- that America is at any given moment what the rest of the world will be in five years or 10 years or 20 years. So so that's really the place to look at if you're an anthropologist and you want to see where the world is headed. I I think you can't do worse than studying the U.S. And as we've seen, the U.S. for the most part is a great model for other countries to follow in terms of our system of government along with, yeah, along with some of the freedoms that we're so lucky to have here in the United States. Totally. So back in December, you wrote a book called The Honor Code. What mm-hmm. is this book about? It's my attempt to kind of help rebuild the moral compass of American culture. You know, and you look at what's happening to American culture, we, we just praised it. And I guess maybe this is the moment to offer a, a criticism. And that is that there are a lot of bad actors in American culture, you know, you've got guys like Jerry Epstein and Larry Nassar and, and Lori Laughlin and the Harvard soccer team and Scott Rudin. I mean, the list just goes on and on. The yeah. newspapers fill with these horrifying stories. So I thought, hey, maybe, you know, what do we do? How do we fix this? And that notion of honor is such a, was such a powerful idea in Western cultures and in, in American culture some time ago that I thought maybe we can, you know, pick this up and dust it off. So you mentioned some of the bad actors in American culture in terms of honor. What are some of the good actors in terms of honor? There, uh, yeah, there are an amazing number of people. And one of my complaints in the book is that they're so relatively unsung. You know, I live in this small town, Connecticut, and I go walking with a friend. And just in the course of conversation over, you know, a year or two of walking together, you know, he'd say, oh, yeah, oh, you know, that, you know, that, that Little League diamond, I, I helped build that. And, and the skating rink, I, I helped build that. And everywhere you look, it turns out this guy's made a contribution of one kind or another. And you think, holy cow, number one, this guy has been extraordinarily generous with his time and, and, and his money. And number two, he gets no credit for it whatsoever. I mean, I lived two doors from the guy. I had no idea how active he was, how much good he had done. So I think... There are many, you know, the, the people who get the ink, of course, are the celebrities. And we, we love nothing more than celebrities who are, who are doing bad things. And we're rarely disappointed. But the good, you know, the people doing good things uh, rarely get the ink. So that was another thing I hope to do with the book. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. It's almost as if with the press, they think like chaos sells. That's why they prefer to have the celebrities doing bad things in the spotlight rather than celebrities. Mm-hmm doing good things in the spotlight. But I mean, sometimes it, it depends on, I guess, the news cycle, if you will. Like sometimes they highlight the good things that celebrities are doing. But yeah, I agree. Oftentimes we hear more bad than good. Yeah. And often you can see celebrities, you know, trying to take over an issue. 
because they're so good and so noble and we can't manage without them. You know, it's just that just so much celebrity fatigue out there right now because I, I really think they've they've overdone it. Even when they're trying to do the right thing, they, they end up putting their foot in it. And so in your book, you mentioned how the United States military has a positive honor culture. And so why do you think the military is one of the few remaining examples of a positive honor culture here in the U.S.? Yeah. In the book, I try to talk about all of the, you know, the, the, the stages by which honor was kind of ripped out of our culture. And you can see it beginning to happen in the 18th, and you can track it through the 19th and the 20, 20th century. And the kind of the final nail in the coffin, if you want, was what happened with the Harvard soccer team a couple of years ago when the men's team began to treat the women's team soccer team at Harvard extremely badly. I mean, really, really nasty stuff. And uh, not only were they not really punished, they were never really criticized. And I thought, holy cow. I mean, Harvard, all of its pretensions, you know, claim that it's this place that it is all about, you know, creating the leaders of tomorrow, all that stuff. And, you know, that's, that does not appear to be happening there, at least not, in, not if this is any uh, a case to judge by. So I was thinking about the military. I used, used to teach the Harvard Business School. And some of the students in my class, the ones who seemed to galvanize that class, these classes travel together from case study to case study, and there are 80 or 90 or 100 of them in one class. And they, they bond as a unit, and they, and they think of themselves as a unit. So they come into your classroom as a group. And you could tell that the leaders of that class were the, the people who had military backgrounds. And you could see that they weren't just making this group feel like a group. You could feel that they were kind of stiffening the spine of the group. So it was not just acting as, you know, a happy group of people. It was acting with more determination and more something steely and determined happened to that group thanks to the presence of the uh, people with the military training. So I thought, oh, you know, that's, so the two things were true. I had seen meter, military leadership with my own eyes, number one. And, and number two, we know that when honor was kind of hunted down and, and driven from the various parts of our culture, one of the places that took it in was the military. The military said, no, no, the rest of you can decide what you need to do, but the military will stand by honor and we will sustain this idea. So in some sense, the military has been that kind of refuge, if you want, of honor. So, I, And I, I wish I could say I'd made a, a systematic study of it. I, I did not. Really, there were a couple of chapters in which I you know, think about how it is the military uh, works with honor and why that sustains it for the rest of us. But it's not a detailed study in that respect. So why do you think us as Americans struggle to make honor a part of our daily lives and culture? I think, you know, a lot of the stuff gets in the way. Some of it is actually that celebrity culture stuff, right? Where, you know, we're enamored of celebrities. Inevitably, we start to imitate them. Inevitably, they start to act badly. Inevitably, we're now imitating people who are acting badly. So in some sense, you know, our, our kids are sometimes doing that, and that's a little horrifying. It's also true, though, that, you know, there's that strain in American culture that says it's all about you. 
And I sort of like that for some purposes. I like that notion that you are accountable to yourself. You need to do what you need to do. You're in, you're in charge of your life. You have to take responsibility for your life. I like that argument. But what I don't like about that is when it tips over into narcissism and I'm so wonderful and the world's all about me and the world turns on me, that's the recipe for an individual who kind of does what they want to do. You know, in the book, I talk about TV executives at CBS who quite happily, you know, sexually assaulted interns without a second thought. I mean, even more horrifying than the behavior is the fact that that even when they were challenged, they were kind of nonchalant, like, well, but of course I do this. Everybody does this. This is my right to do this. Some, some celebrities actually seem to believe that, that indeed they're free to act badly. So celebrity culture is part of it. A kind of culture of a kind of narcissistic individualism, maybe we could call it, is also a problem. So I think it comes from a variety of, of I think we've also, you know, almost all of our elites you know, you think about, well, why do people act well when they act well? Often it is because they're imitating and, and they're imitating, they might be imitating military behavior. And, you know, Hollywood has sung the, properly sung the praises of the American military. And so people draw inspiration from what they see on the screen. There was a time when we really cared about, you know, high society and that, you know, you can see the magazines of the 1920s and 30s used to run stories about about the, the, the upper classes in Philadelphia. And that was supposed to kind of inspire you to a certain kind of behavior. We had elites in, in the academic world, in the, in the world of medicine. We had elites all over and those elites acted well. And for certain purposes, I think we hoped that people would, those would be the models for imitation. But almost all of those elites have been brought low. Right? And this is well before cancel culture. This is just us saying, oh, who, who cares about um, medical professionals or, or scientific inventors or, you know, those people can't matter. And again, it's, we're back to this notion that celebrity culture distracted us from some of the models that in a more perfect world we would imitate. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. And getting back to your point on CBS News, it's unfortunate how there were high-level executives and media personalities like Charlie Rose who thought they could do whatever they wanted without consequence. And also, not only was this a problem for CBS, but it seemed to be an industry-wide issue within the media. For instance, you had Roger Ailes over at Fox along with hosts like Bill O'Reilly, and then there was Matt Lauer on the Today Show, just doing horrible things to female co-workers. Yeah. Yeah, that whole lockable door thing, I think, horrifying. Oh, yeah, yeah, with the button. That, that's just yeah. disgusting. Absolutely. Yeah. So how can this book help teach readers about honor? And how can this help them stray away from making sure they don't feel like they're untouchable, like, say, some of these media personalities. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, I end the book with 10 rules of honor, the first of which is that we have to honor honor. We have to take it seriously as a thing in the, in, in the world. We have to care about it as something that, that, that defines us and defines our, our neighbors and our colleagues and our communities. 
And that's kind of first order of, or, of business. Most of us have just sort of forgotten about honor as an idea. And I have to sometimes, you know, people discover the book and, and ask me about it with this, you know, this, this, this tone of wonder that I should have written a book about something so obviously old fashioned. <laughs> I think, wow, this really bounced off you completely. But for some other readers, I'm hoping they're going to go, yeah, honor, that makes sense. I like the idea of honor. If I'm in the military, I live an honorable life. So the first rule, honor, honor is a good one. The second rule is treasure the honor you have. I like the idea that, you know, you get some honor just for showing up. It's like honor is table stakes. We take for granted that you're a good person who's going to do good things. You're going to act in good ways. Some people, of course, squander that honor completely. They can't wait to behave badly. And, and that's, you know, it seems to me to kind of define the loser, somebody who just gives away this precious patrimony and just says, oh, I don't, you know, let me at every bad behavior you've got on offer. That's for me. Who cares about honor? So that's one and two. Three is, this is, you know, I think honor is relatively, if I may say, and your listeners, I hope will correct me, because as I say, I have not made myself a student of military honor, but I think in the military, honor is probably relatively clear, right? There, there's very clear notions of what you do for your colleagues, your unit, for the military more generally. The notion of what honor is and how you achieve honor is, I think, pretty clearly defined in the military because the military has never lost track of this precious thing. For the rest of the world, there is a, a rule three, and that says find your rule, your roles, and find your rules. Everybody in the social world gets a number of rules, like you're a father, you're a son, you're a member of the community, you're a little league coach, you're whatever you are, you've got a number of roles. Those roles are defined by rules. Every role has a, comes with its own set of rules. Just honor those rules and don't break those rules and you're on your road to honor. The next rule is cultivate your internal honor. And I think this is really a vital piece of the honor proposition. This is the one that says, if you know you've done the right thing, it doesn't matter what the world thinks you have or haven't done. So when you look at yourself in the mirror, if you know you did the honorable thing, you're good. And the world can think what it wants to think. And that's okay, because you're the arbiter of your sense of honor. So you cultivate that internal honor by satisfying the demands you make of yourself. You decide who you have to be to be an honorable person. You go out and, and you become those things. And you build a war chest of honor that sustains you if and when the world turns on. And of course, sometimes the world will happily turn on you and you need a storehouse of honor to sustain yourself. The fifth piece is to cultivate external honor. And that's a somewhat different piece. Internal honor is all about what you believe is important and your assessment of whether you did that stuff. The fifth is cultivating a community sense of honor. And what's weird here is that my neighbor down the street, this guy who's done all these things for his community, there ought to be some way for people to give this guy props, right? For them to say, oh, Bob, you know, he helped build the Little League Stadium. So that, it seems to me, we need to build these, we, you know, in, the, in the, the network 
the networks being created, especially online and in social media, we talk about reputation economies. And what I'm talking about here is a reputation economy that would exist online and offline in every kind of community where people who are doing good things get credit, get props for doing good things. So those are the top five. You may not care about hearing about every single one. I'm grinding on a little bit here. So I'll turn it back to you to see if you have other questions. Yeah, sure. And I think it's very important to keep those first five virtues in mind. And since we're on the topic of the military, given how you are originally from Canada, do you find the Canadian military to be a similar example to having an honor culture like the U.S. military does? Yeah, that, you know, that's really the weird thing about, about growing up in Canada is that the military in Canada is so small. You know, Canada has relied so much on the U.S. to supply its military umbrella of protection that it does not have a robust or very, maybe it's robust. It's not a large military. In fact, the Canadian military is apparently roughly about the size of the military in Thailand. It's a relatively small group. So it doesn't have a big place in the community. And most Canadians, it's rare for Canadians, like everybody in the US knows somebody in the military, but in Canada, many people do not know anybody in the military. And they're sort of often surprised to learn that Canada has a military, you know, it's the old joke, but wait, Canada has a tank. It's the old joke. So I didn't really have anything to work with when I came south to teach at Harvard Business School. And so it was really a revelation for me to see how, oh, you know, the first time I saw the, the U.S. military, and this is such weird data, but an anthropologist will take any data he can get his mitts on. I'm, I was uh, living in Canada, and I went for a winter holiday in the Caribbean. And we were a bunch of guys at this resort go out to the side to play. I guess it was football or maybe it was baseball. And there was a U.S. ship in port and the guys came off the ship and joined us in the game. And I thought, oh, this would be fun. The guys who were from the resort were all pretty good, right? They played in high school. They were pretty fit. You know, they knew something about their athletics. We so got our butts kicked by these guys off the ship. And I'm sorry, I don't know who, what, what ship it was. I can't give them that credit, but they were just so much. I mean, everything about them was better as athletes. And it was stunning for me to see that these guys were literally living. And in this case, playing at a level that, <laughs> that was well above me. So that was a real glimpse of, wow, this is a thing. This, this is a community. And of course you come to the States and from what would we say, the 70s, the 60s or the 70s onwards, American culture has been relatively hostile to the military, not always, thank God. But in some cases, some communities within the states are relentless in their criticism and their disdain. So, you know, I had heard some of that. And so to see these guys in action was a revelation. Then to see people in the Harvard Business School classroom was another revelation. revelation. And you see, wow, there is something going on here that is unlike anything you've seen before. And there's this sense that you stand for something. And I think we all have our private missions in life, and those are important, God knows. But there's something about standing for some common public purpose that is, I think, remarkable. And it transforms people, right? It changes them. It makes them better. 
it makes them remarkable. So that was really interesting for me to come south and to see this in action. One question that we like to ask all of our guests on the podcast, and it kind of has to do with honor in a way, is what does the word valor mean to you? Hmm, good question. I think it's doing the difficult thing. I mean, in, in, in many, I think the traditional meaning for me is probably everybody's traditional meaning, and that is courage in battle, right, when you're really up against it. But I think it also has to mean, or at least it means to me, doing the right thing when it's difficult. And when doing the right thing could mean weeks of grinding it out, just you know, getting it to happen, satisfying somebody's expectation. That's not that sudden call to action, right? Where, where you respond with the power of your, of your own determination. This is when you just have to gut it out. So both for me, the honor in the moment and honor over the longer term. And getting back to your last point about the military and group dynamics, it's fascinating how these dynamics can be applied to any situation. It doesn't just have to be a military scenario. Given how some celebrities have a significant influence on how people treat each other, as we've seen, what do you think they can do to help promote an honored culture? I mean, I know it could be kind of tough, but one example that came to mind is over the course of the COVID pandemic here in the United States, we've seen an alarming rise of both physical and verbal attacks against those in the Asian community. And there's one celebrity, I'm not sure if you know him, he's Jeremy Lin, who is an NBA player, and he's been taking a stand against anti-Asian attacks by posting videos of himself talking about the issue in order to educate others about it, as well as participating with other Asian American celebrities in town halls to discuss ways to combat the problem. So do you think when you hear stories like what Jeremy Wynn is doing, could that possibly help other celebrities promote an honor culture in the U.S. to their followers? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's the probably the best model of celebrity action, I guess, is when you say, listen, because I'm very good, in his case, at basketball, or I'm, I'm a film star of some kind, because I have a chunk of public attention, I should use that to some good purpose. And in his case, he's saying, let's draw attention to this horrifying problem of prejudice. So that's kind of the best case, I think, right? When people take advantage of the gift they've been given by the American public. And I think, you know, it's, it's the perfect opposite of what is the more normal practice. And that is people saying, listen, I've been given this gift of public attention. I must be wonderful. And I'm now entitled to act any way I want. That sounds like absolutely the opposite. So I guess the lesson here is don't be like a celebrity. Don't be like a typical celebrity. Mm. <laughs> yeah, if only we had more celebrities. I mean, I know we, we do have a good share of celebrities that set a positive example. And another celebrity that comes to mind is Bob Feller. Hmm. 
What would you think Bob Feller would make of this current honor culture situation we have in the United States? Do you think that he could be a good voice to help promote this honor culture? Yeah, totally. You know, if we could get him in a time machine and bring him to the present day, I, I think he'd be horrified. You know, there's so much showboating. You guys might be able to answer this question. I've, I've, it's been bugging me for several months now. There's a famous moment in baseball where somebody hits a home run, and I think they clear the bases and end the game and, and end maybe the series, and it's one of those moments of, of walk-off triumph, right? You drop the bat. And this guy, so th- th- this is some, and he was a very famous athlete before he hit this home run. So he runs the bases and he gets to home plate and he does a little hop onto a home plate, sort of to celebrate the sheer astonishment of the moment. And later he's asked to talk about what the hop was about. And he says, I am so embarrassed by that right? I don't know what I was thinking. I just got carried away with a moment. So just out of joy, I hopped on home plate. And I thought, holy Toledo. I mean, people now, you know, like everybody celebrates everything. And I think there's something kind of fun and glorious about that. On the other hand, it, it really, I think if Bob Feller could see how completely enthralled we were with ourselves and how completely preoccupied we are with singing our own praises and blowing our own horn, he might be unhappy with us. That story you mentioned of the baseball player hitting that walk-off home run and then jumping on home plate afterwards, it kind of reminded me of a similar scenario that happened back in 2010, where Kendrys Morales, a first baseman for the Los Angeles Angels, hit a walk-off grand slam during the regular season. And as he's approaching home plate, He decides to jump on the plate, and then in the process, unfortunately, he fractures and dislocates his ankle, which caused him to miss nearly two full seasons of playing baseball. So the lesson from that story is, yeah, while it's great to celebrate hitting a walk-off home run, you just got to make sure you don't go overboard with the celebration and don't injure yourself in the process. Now, to me... I don't have a problem with baseball players celebrating or showing some more emotion after hitting a home run or making a great play. But other people may view that differently. It depends on their age or their generation. That's what makes baseball and some other sports really fascinating is how they have different generations of fans and athletes. Yeah, exactly. So there's, there's a kind of rolling wave of change going on there. Absolutely. And it probably, you know, that that celebration is, even as it gets more and more kind of dramatic and, and maybe even extravagant, I think it takes us away from some of our responsibilities to a common code, a notion of honor. I mean, it's a, surely we don't want to be, we want to go back to a time that is that is unprepared to, to kind of take full advantage of the glory of a walk-off home run. I mean, what is, what is more glorious? But it's certainly true that if, if that's all we're doing is celebrating ourselves and we no longer celebrate 
owner in the community, then then we're moving maybe in the wrong direction. I'd agree with you on that one. I think by having this honor culture in the community and honoring those in the community, that can help us feel more united rather than divided. Mm. Totally. Totally. Okay, I think that just about wraps up our interview. Thank you so much, Grant, for coming on. It was great getting to meet you and speak with you today. My pleasure, Galen. Thanks for the chance to talk. To our listeners, this conversation with Grant McCracken concludes this episode of the American Valor podcast. This conversation was brought to you by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, the Department of the United States Navy, Major League Baseball, USAA, BWXT, Huntington Ingalls, and the Cleveland Indians. Please leave your comments in the comment section below and connect with the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Active Valor Award. You can engage with the foundation at activevalorward.org. There, you can learn more about Bob Feller, Jerry Coleman, recent nominees of the awards, view pictures, and sign up for updates, including the American Valor podcast, and more. For Colin Kirk and everyone here at the American Valor podcast, I'm Galen O'Dell. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.